This will not be 90 minutes, and it will not be anywhere as near as intense as yesterday. Uh, when I started doing these, when we started doing these Verisage symposiums, we all knew we had to do presentations, and I think it was the second one or something, I said, well, what am I going to tell a group of people that have heard me over and over and over and are sick of hearing me? And I thought, well, why don't I just tell them the best books I've read since I met with them last? And that turned out to be something that was pretty popular. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the baker's dozen best books I've read. Now, it says best business books, but I should have taken, taken business books out. I used to read tons of business books, and now I'm convinced that if you're sent to hell, the, business li the, the libraries down there are stocked with business books. <clears throat> and if you're sent to heaven, they're stocked with literature and biographies and autobiographies. So I've gotten much more discriminating about what I read. I used to pick up a business book, and if it was terrible, I'd read it all the way through. Most of the time now, I don't even pick up a business book. So the philosophy to present these, and it is a baker's dozen, so I get to give you 13, not 12. Uh, but the philosophy I like is Franz Kafka's. And he said, I think we ought to read only the kind of books that wound and stab us. If the book we are reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head, what are we reading it for? I love that. That's my philosophy. These books stab me that I'm about to share with you. They changed my worldview. They changed uh, an opinion, perhaps. And I'm only recommending them because I think you'll get some value out of them as well. But it's a very discerning list. Ed and I, we read somewhere between 50 and 100 books a year. We talk about a lot of them on the radio show, especially towards the end of the year. We might do a show just recapping the best books we read for the year. So some of these have been on our podcast. But these are the books that the top 13 books I've read since Boston. So, here we go. How to Think. I just finished this on the plane when I landed here in Dallas on Monday, or whenever that day was, uh, Tuesday, I guess. Uh, I like this book. It's short. It's written by a college professor. I think he's an English teacher. He's been teaching for 30-some-odd years. And it was just incredibly thought-provoking. Because, and I'm just going to give you some of the things he said. He said, behavioral economics is a chronicle of ineptitude, arrogance, and sheer dumbassery. And, and, you know, he's right. I mean, if you listen to some of these behavioral economists long enough, with all of the biases, and there's millions of them now, you know, the, the endowment effect and all of these things, it makes it sound like we're a bunch of drooling idiots who can't function. I still have a very healthy skepticism about behavioral economics economics, by the way. I don't think it explains everything. I think it, it helps tremendously with pricing. When we had George Gilder on the show, and George Gilder, as many of you know who know me or listen to the show, George Gilder is my hero. I mean, he's my ultimate mentor. The man rocked my world when I was 20 years old, and I've written about this, so I'm not going to you know, go into it. But we asked Gilder, and unfortunately it was during the break, not during the show. I said, George, what do you think of behavioral economics? And he said, it's trivial. I thought, whoa, it's trivial. Because he's trying to think of how economies grow and how people, you know, how wealth is created. He's dealing with these very big issues, and he just, his mind doesn't go to, oh, we make all these stupid little decisions about opting in and opting out. But 
So anyway, this guy kind of talks about that. And what he says is, thinking is, it's not the decision itself, but what goes into the decision, the consideration, the assessment, it will always be an art rather than a science. And of course, that's how we feel about pricing. He says, you don't start, and I, this, this blew my mind. I thought this was really clever. You don't start thinking for yourself. You start thinking with different people. To think independently of other human beings is impossible. That is profound. I mean, you know, I've even said it. Well, I'm glad they're finally thinking for themselves. You know, we always joke about liber- why don't libertarians, you know, take to the streets and march? It's because they'd all end up in the bookstores, you know, and, and <laughs> because all they do is read. And, but, but the point is, if you want to think differently, hang out with different people. That's what changes your mind because thinking is interdependent, right? We need other humans. Sure, you can think somewhat on your, on your own, but that's one of the things I get most out of these symposiums is being able to think with different people. You've probably noticed that even all the fellows have different approaches to some of their you know, pricing strategies and different things. Uh, and I, I think that's really valuable. The other thing he said that I really liked, he said, when we commend someone for thinking for herself, they usually mean ceasing to sound like people I dislike and starting to sound more like people I approve of. And, you know, that's true, too. And, and if you think about the age of social media and, you know, how kind of polarized we are and, you know, supposedly things only go into your feed that, that uh, reinforce your beliefs, which I think is in my case, it's nonsense. I get lots of stuff I disagree with in my feeds because I think I, I have enough people who are friends who completely disagree with me on political issues or whatever it might be. So I, I, that I think thinking with different people forces you to be more tolerant of others' views. I still think they're wrong, but that doesn't mean that you, know, you can't have a civil relationship with them. The Yale Political Union has a saying, to break on the floor that's when somebody changes their mind in the middle of the debate. And they say, they point to the other side and say something like, you, 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 you people are right, I'm wrong. I'm on the wrong side of this issue. It's actually happened, doesn't happen a lot. Doesn't happen a lot. But Ed and I did a whole show about changing your mind and it's not a burning bush moment. It's really, it's, it's not a, an epiphany. I mean, some things are, but something like value pricing, I mean, some of the journeys that you talked about today, like Matthew's journey, I think about, uh, you know, it, it, it took a while. You have to wrestle with the big issues. You do. You ha- we want you to wrestle with them. I wrestled with cost accounting for a long time. And now I finally think that we've landed on something that makes sense and is a better and superior replacement, just like after action reviews are for performance appraisals and timesheets and all of that. Uh, And the other thing he said is the true fellowship is people who are not so much like-minded as like-hearted. That's what this is. Dan said it yesterday. He said, welcome to the family. And, and, And folks, you've probably figured out this is a family. I mean, Barisage is the Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. It's really true because you know there's a group of supportive people here that if you want to talk to somebody about an issue or have a question, you can call any one of the fellows in this room and they will spend as much time with you uh, as humanly possible. Uh, they're probably going to hate me for saying that, but uh, 
because nobody ever does. But if 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 you needed to, we're there for you. We're your we're we've got your back. We want it. We we love to see our colleagues succeed. That's one of the measures of our success. So I really like that book. Uh, another book I read, Competing Against Luck, Clayton Christensen. Ed and I really admire this guy. He's written some great books, The Innovator's Dilemma. He's a Harvard business uh, professor. And uh, he also wrote a book, by the way, called Measuring, How, how Are You Going to Measure Your Success About Life? Because he had a, a bout with cancer and he overcame it. And it really made him reflect on a very deeper level. And I think that's a good book too. But this one is interesting because in this book, he's talking about... Uh, he says innovation is is about progress, not products. That's that was kind of interesting. Like Ed said, we usually think about innovation, you know, the iPod, the iPhone, whatever. But he says it's really just about progress, advancing civilization. And his theory in this book is the theory of jobs to be done. What job did you hire that product to do? That's his theory. He says if you can figure out what you're supposed, what the customer expects the product or service to provide then you'll have a better understanding of value and you'll be competing against luck that your competitors, you know, they, they, they don't understand this, but you do. Now, I've got reservations about this theory. I'm not sure it's as well fleshed out uh, and proven as, as Clayton seems to think, but it's still, it's still interesting. It's, it's one of the, you know, Ed and I did a show on YP, the psychology of buying, why and how people buy. And, and what do we have, Ed? Like eight or nine theories of why people buy. I mean, they're all over the board. I, I, can give you, I could give you 10 theories of why people buy. People buy good feelings and solutions to problems. And people, well, Clayton's is they buy a, a job to be done. So he says, you'll be competing against luck when others are still counting on it. <laughs> because if you understand the, the job to be done, then you're not competing on, you know, you're not competing on luck anymore. You're actually trying to figure out what it is the consumer's trying to accomplish. Uh, he said, customer satisfaction metrics, which reveal whether a customer is happy, doesn't give any clues as to how to do the job better. I've always kind of thought customer satisfaction satisfaction metrics were kind of insane because they're not a representative sample of your customers. And they tend not to have much to do with customer loyalty, whether or not a customer is going to come back. You can score very high on satisfaction surveys and still have customers who defect. A lot of businesses have proved that over the years. So I think that's, I think Clayton's got a really good book. Now, I think it's more for uh, uh, product type companies. I, I didn't see how I could really apply some of this stuff to a professional service. I'm, I'm more aligned with the transformation idea. But if you have clients who are in a product business, I do think the, the theory of the jobs to be done has is, is got, got some legs to it and, and could maybe uh, you could have a fruitful discussion. This one by these two guys, I'm not even going to try and pronounce their names, but I met them at a professional pricing society conference. It's called Monetizing Innovation, How Smart Companies Design the Product uh, Around the Price. And this is basically explaining target costing. This is basically explaining why Toyota... Or, and how Toyota doesn't have to have a standard cost accounting system. Why? Because they understand the value of the car before they build it. And there's all sorts of ways they do that. And then they set the price of that car before they build it. And then they manage the costs below that price to generate a profit 
that they can live with. And that's how it's done. It's done from the inside out, just like we teach. So one, a couple of the insights from this book is Porsche built the SUV Kion around the price, generating half of the profit in the company and generating the highest profits per car in the industry. So they really talk about how Porsche did this, and I found that to be incredibly enlightening. And they said most companies postpone marketing and pricing decisions to the very end. Why? Because they're using cost plus pricing. Right? They have to know their costs. They have, to, they have to finish production before they can figure out their costs. That's not how it's done in a sane company. In a sane company, you know your costs before you do something. Not after. After's, it's, it, at that point, it's too late. And, how, and this is a really brilliant insight, and I know it came up in the Art of Value conference. Uh, I think we talked about, somebody talked about this yesterday, but how you charge is often more important than how much you charge. Now, for a group of pricers to say something like that, it's very bizarre, but what he's saying here is how you present pricing, options, context, anchoring, framing effects, all of all the psychological effects that we've been talking about, that is critically important. And it's probably more important than the actual dollar amount that you charge. And so that's a really, really, I think, profound point. Another book that I absolutely loved was called Digital Gold. And this is a, if you're a geek, if you're a fin geek, if you're into Bitcoin, if you're into blockchain, um, Nathaniel Popper is a journalist who studied it. And what I loved about this book, because Russ Roberts had him on Econ Talk, that's, by the way, another podcast that Ed and I love, comes out every Monday. Russ Roberts, he's at Hoover Institution and Stanford University, and he, it's all about economics. So if you're an econ geek, this is a great podcast. He interviewed this guy, and I was really impressed with the interview, so I got the book, and I was more impressed with the book. The book is fantastically written, as you would expect from a journalist, but it tells the story of the founding of Bitcoin, and it's a fascinating. You want to talk about innovators. You want to talk about disruptors. You want to talk about visionaries. Bitcoin is amazing, and, and the blockchain that, that supports it is, is just uh, one of the most eloquent, elegant things I've ever seen or, or ever uh, read about. I don't know if you can see it. Satoshi Nakamoto envisioned a digital analog to old-fashioned gold. Bitcoin is the gold standard digitally. It's on the computer. It's really all it is. It's why the same, some of the same lingo was used. Miners? <laughs> Miners? They call them miners. Why? Well, the gold rush, right? I mean, there's all sorts of these parallels. Uh, some, some people, the economists recently um, said some people, you know, equate Bitcoin to the Dutch tulip mania. I, I mean, this is absurd. Ed, what's Bitcoin today? You've probably looked at it. It's probably seven or 75, $6,000. It's not the tulip mania, you know, from whatever, the 1700s or whatever, because this is something that's new but it's needed. In fact, uh, George Gilder calls it the seventh layer of the internet. You know, the internet's built on, what is it, six or seven layers? I always, it's the eighth layer, sorry. That should be the eighth layer. Uh, I, I can't even tell you what the seven layers are. I'm not sure many of you could tell us what the seven layers are. And that's the point, that we all use things that we don't have to under, I don't have to be a, you know, a physicist to fly in an airplane. I mean, that's how civilization advances. Gilder calls it the trust and transactions layer of the internet. 
and, and it's absolutely brilliant. The Economist calls it a trust machine. We're talking about the blockchain now, not Bitcoin, the blockchain technology that underlies it. And because the blockchain is not in God we trust would be on our money, it would be in math we trust, because that's what the miners are doing. They're solving very, very complex math problems to make sure the transaction that gets recorded in the block is, is, is the right person, it identifies, and you know, what is it? Most of the miners have to agree on it, and the first one that does gets some Bitcoin, and that's how the miners make money. So any, anyway, the Digital Gold Book does a great job explaining the history. These guys are a, a really fascinating and diverse lot. You'll also read about Silk Road and, and, <laughs> and all of that and, the, and some of the federal case, but I, I really enjoyed this book because it was a great history. This book called The Grid by a guy named Matt Watkinson the only reason I got this book was because on Rory Sutherland's Twitter feed and Facebook feed, he blurbed this book. And another guest, and we've had Rory on the show, um, in fact, I think it was in our first month or two of the show, we, we brought him on and he was great. But we also had Dr. Jules Goddard on, an English um, uh, business professor who wrote a book, <laughs> Common Sense, Uncommon, or Com Common something, yeah, common nonsense, uncommon sense, whatever. Uh, great book, great strategy book. He also blurbed this book. And I thought, well, if two of my heroes can blurb a book, then it must be pretty good. So uh, what this guy do did is he created a model. And, you know, he said essentially all models are wrong, but some are, so some are useful, right? He quoted this mathematician, which is true. This is how economists tend to think. And his model, and I'm not going to go through all this, but the whole point of the grid is that a business is an interdependent system. You can't just go in and change one thing without affecting a lot of other things. And this is a model that helps you think about if you change something on this grid, and he goes into pricing as well, then other things are gonna change as well. And he did, I think, a really good job laying out the model so you could have a conversation about, okay, if we do this price increase or if we, if we go after this segment of the market, what other things are going to be affected in our business? Because remember, a business, a firm, it's, it's kind of like a living organism. It's an interdependent system. It's like the human body. You know, if you put drugs in the human body to uh, ameliorate a, a, a pain or, or whatever, I mean, drugs are just controlled poison. And there's going to be side effects. There's going to be other issues that pop up because of that drug. And it may require another drug or some other type of treatment. So doctors have to think of us as, you know, holistic entities. They can't just optimize, you know, for your pain reduction or whatever it might be because there's other side effects going on. And I thought this was pretty well laid out. He gave a lot of very timely examples. Uh, it's a quick read. Uh, he, he also made the point that a lot of business authors don't talk about uh, businesses being inter interdependent, which is, eh, I, it's probably true, unless, of course, you read Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker's been talking about this his whole life. Uh, so did Deming, so did Covey, so did several others I can think of, but, you know, he's got to sell books, so he's got to make himself sound like this is something brand new. I, I get that. Um, this one, Gary Kasparov, right? The, the grand chess master who lost, ultimately, to... IBM's Deep Blue. One thing I tried not to do is I've been reading lots of books on AI, kind of like what Bill Sheridan and, and Tom have probably been doing in the last you know, couple years. And I, this is the only one I included because 
all of these books on AI that talk about the future of work, the future of jobs, the future of the professions, the future of AI, humans need not apply, humans are underrated. The fact is, none of these people know a damn thing. I mean, it's all speculation because we can't predict the future. We really can't. We wouldn't want to live in a world where you could predict the future. As George Gilder says, creativity always takes us by surprise. That's the whole point. If it didn't, we wouldn't need it. So I, I remain incredibly optimistic about the future. AI, I think, is great. And I was happy to see that Gary here does too. He's an incredible optimist about this. And he said, listen, he said, if anybody could feel threatened about losing their job to a computer, it's me, <laughs> right? I mean, he was one of the first to put his uh, head in the block. But here's some of the things he said. 1985, age 22, he became the youngest champion ever. He retired in 2005. In 1996, he did beat IBM's Deep Blue. But then they had a rematch in 1997, and he lost. The Newsweek's cover at the time said, the brain's last stand, <laughs> right? And Jay Leno cracked in a related story earlier today. The New York Mets were defeated by a microwave oven. And I had to put that in for you. <laughs> I thought that was a great line. Uh, the week that IBM beat uh, Gary, it was you know, worldwide headlines. I mean, every media outlet was there. Raised IBM stock by $11.4 billion because of the publicity. We want IBM to take the CPA exam. <laughs> We kind of I would love to, or maybe the bar exam, and I would love to see what would happen in, in that instance. Uh, Deep Blue, and here's what Gary said. He said, Deep Blue was intelligent the way your programmable alarm clock is intelligent. Not that losing to a $10 million alarm clock made me feel any better. <laughs> thought that was a great line. Um, in 2003, by the way, he played to a draw against Deep Junior, which was another thing that IBM created, and he, he played to a draw. So, but, but then he was very reflective about it, and, he, and the book goes into the story about it, and some of IBM's things that they did were really kind of underhanded. I, I don't know if you'd say unethical, but they were definitely underhanded. They wouldn't give him records of the games that Deep Blue had played in the rematch. I mean, they were out for blood. They wanted to destroy him uh, in the rematch. Um, it was a human achievement, though, he said, after all. So while a human lost to the match, humans also won because humans created Deep Blue. That, that's kind of a significant point. And then he said, um, this is why we need to partner human plus machine. He said, because machines can't dream, not even in sleep mode. We still need people to dream and create and, and be innovative. Now, maybe someday Watson will be able to, you know, dream and create. I know it's made some movie trailers and all of that, but there's still going to be a, a massive role for humans. Uh, Gary says intuition is experience times confidence. I thought that was kind of a cool way uh, to look at it. And he quotes Andrew Ng from Baidu in China who says, worrying about super intelligent and evil Artificial intelligence today is like worrying about the problem of overcrowding on Mars. <laughs> Elon Musk might be worrying about overcrowding on Mars, but uh, I'm not sure the rest of us should be worried about artificial intelligence. He said, being remembered as the first world champion to lose a match to a computer cannot be worse than being remembered as the first world champion to run away from a computer. So I thought that was a, thought that was a pretty good point. I liked it because it was an interesting story. It's well-written. Gary's a really, really, really smart guy. 
He does a lot of work with kids. Uh, you know, chess camp. I think Ed, you said you bought a program. Uh, is a master class. Uh, I I didn't realize that the grand master title is being you know put on younger and younger people. I think now the youngest one are 13 years old or something. I mean, Fisher was 17 and he broke the record, but now there's 13 year olds. Why? Because they've been taught by some of these chess programs that are out there. So just really, really fascinating stuff. Tim Harford's a British economist that I really like. He's written a few books out there. And this is 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. So he's not saying it's the 50 greatest inventions. He's not saying that it's the 50 you know, most important inventions. He's saying it's 50 that just shaped the modern economy. I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, I'm only going to just show you four of them, but I will say this about this book. This is really cool because he tells you the history of each invention, and you'll learn a ton of things that you had no clue where some of these ideas and some of these uh, creations came from. And and it's a short book. It's easy to read. It's a it's a fun read because you learn just all this really fun stuff. But let me just give you a, a few of these. Barbed wire, obviously, is really important because it defined property rights, kept cattle on you know, your own ranch, so they didn't wander off. And they saw, in other words, it solved big problems that, you know, as, as they settled the West. Uh, seller feedback, he puts, is a massive thing on eBay, on Amazon, right? Being able to rate your Uber driver and your Lyft driver. Why? Because it creates trust. It creates trust. The Billy Bookcase. Does anybody know what the Billy Bookcase is? Yep. Okay. Wow. That's, see, that's amazing. Uh, I had no idea what the Billy Bookcase was. Uh, and then tax havens. I threw that in for Morris, but he's not here. Um, so I, I, I'd commend you to take a look at Harford's book. It's, it's, a, it's a good read. It's a, it's a really good read. Confessions of a Pricing Man uh, by Herman Simon. He's a legend in pricing circles. Simon and Kuchner is one of the leading pricing consulting firms in the world. Uh, they're out of Germany, but they've got worldwide offices. Ed and I met him at a, a professional pricing society conference. He sat through one of my keynotes. He came up to me. He's a pretty towering guy, and he, and he shook my hand. He said, that was very interesting, and I thought, oh, that means he thought most of it was bullshit. But um, anyway, he says that pricing is about how people divide up value. What a great way to think about it. That's, that's about as simple as it gets. Um, so highly recommend this book, especially for those of you who do not reside in the United States of America, because he's got lots of examples from worldwide companies in Europe and in other places. So maybe you can relate more to the stories rather than just re constantly reading about Apple and eBay and you know Amazon and Uber and all that. Uh, it's more of a worldwide perspective. Uh, another thing, though, just to follow up on what he said here about dividing up value. Um, on the, e again, Econ Talk with Michael Munger uh, that Russ Roberts interviewed. He's an economist. He said, if you and I disagree about the value of something, we can probably agree on a price. That's an interesting way to frame it. Uh, so all prices that are agreed on probably result from a disagreement about value. Prices reconcile disagreements on value. That's clever. It's a, I know it's a negative framing, but it's, it's technically correct. It, you know, Value, every transaction is based on an inequality, not an equality of value, an inequality, right? If I'm up here selling apples for a buck, 
I value your dollar more than I value my apple, and you value my apple more than you value your dollar. That's, a, that's an inequality of value, and, and the price is how we reconcile that, that, that spread, that difference. So just another way to think about it. Uh, how to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, Kind of the Story of My Life by Scott Adams. You guys know Scott Adams. He's created, created Dilbert. I had very, very low expectations for this book, thinking, oh, it's going to be a bunch of his cartoons, and you know, he's going to tell about how he started Dilbert, and I thought his TV show sucked, and uh, the book is brilliant. This guy is a deep thinker. <laughs> this guy is far more profound than you'd ever believe. I mean, it, it just blew me away. And let me just show you, because this is in his book. He calls it the book tease. Uh, he says, goals are for losers. <laughs> I have a system, not goals, because he talks about the, you know, goals being achieved is kind of anticlimactic, right? Where do you go from there? What's next? Well, he's got a system. Uh, he also says, your mind isn't magic. It's a moist computer you can program. The most important metric to track is your personal energy. Every skill you acquire doubles your odds of success. He calls it a skill stack which is an interesting uh, phrase. He says, happiness is health plus freedom. Luck can be managed, sort of. Conquer shyness by being a huge phony in a good way. <laughs> and fitness is a lever that moves the world. Simplicity transforms ordinary into amazing. So he's got basically a chapter for each one of these and more. And it's great. I mean, it's really, really thought-provoking. He talks about a lot of different things, and a lot of it is really, really good advice, and some of it is very, very counterintuitive. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Highly recommend Scott Adams. Blockchain, if you're interested at all in blockchain, and it's probably dated by now because this blockchain world is moving so darn fast, it's really hard to keep up with it. But in terms of understanding it at a fundamental level in, in a non-technical you know, book, Don Tapscott and his son Alex Tapscott, I think, did a great job here uh, explaining what blockchain is, how the technology behind Bitcoin is changing money, business, and the world. Uh, you know, they have this acronym called Atomic, and these are the kind of things that the blockchain is going to enable us to do. You're going to be able to own and control your own identity, and it's going to be secure, and it's going to be private, and it's verifiable, and time-stamped, and all these different things. Um, it's, it's, it, this opens up all sorts of things for development around the world, property rights being clearly defined, who owns what land birth certificates, marriage certificates, all of these types of things, even being able to run clinical drug trials and have the results on a, on a blockchain. Remember that a blockchain is just a publicly distributed ledger that's basically time-stamped. So the implications for accounting, the implications for bookkeeping, the implication for auditors. You know, I talked to Mark Coisiel in the AICPA, and they said, well, but somebody still needs to audit the blockchain. It's like, no, sorry, that's already been done. <laughs> uh, the miners audit the blockchain. I, I'm not sure what this is going to do to the auditing profession, but it, uh, it could seriously dampen its, its sphere of influence. Let's just put it that way. Um, it's, 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 I think it's incredibly exciting technology. Uh, this guy... CEO of Gen, he says, in the future, people won't talk about blockchains any more than they now talk about the lower level architecture that makes the internet work. We'll just use them every day without thinking about it. 
you know, we don't think about the seven layers of the internet when we use it. We just type in www or go to Google, and we're not going to be thinking about the eighth layer, this trust and transaction layer. We're just going to use it, and it's just going to be part of civilization. In fact, this guy, Alfred North Whitehead, culture advances by extending the number of important operations which we can perform without thinking of them. That's a great line. If you go back and you look around Civil War days, Abraham Lincoln days, what it took for a photographer to snap a picture, <laughs> the, the person had to sit still for like two minutes, and it was just this real pain process. And then, of course, you had, you know, the Polaroid and the instant camera, and now we've got these digital phones, that, and we've got this thing, this camera that can get you different angles and different shots. I mean, it's amazing. And, and you don't have to know all the details about how this technology works, but we can all use it. That is how civilization advances. Tom Whoop, The Kingdom of Speech. Uh, this is a book I talked about, I think, last year on the show. Uh, it was my all-time favorite book of the year. And I think, Ed, you read this. You weren't as impressed as I was. Um, and I get that. But first off, Tom Wolf is a great writer. <laughs> so whether you like the premise of the book or not, it's just enjoyable to read somebody who can write like him. I mean, he's just got a way with words that is truly unbelievable. But he says the most fundamental questions about the origins and evolution of our linguistic, that word's come up a lot, capacity remains as mysterious as ever. In, in other words, folks, scientists can't explain how we got language. Darwinism can't explain it, and Darwin knew it was a gaping hole in his theory. And that's the premise of this book. Where does language come from? It doesn't come from animals. It doesn't come from them grunting and screaming and screeching because of predators in the forest. Something is very, very unique about the human's capacity for language, and scientists can't explain it. They can't explain it. And Tom Wolfe goes on to say, speech is not one of man's several unique attributes. Speech is the attribute of all attributes. It's the ultimate thing that separates us from animals, is our capacity for language. That and we put ice in our drinks. But um, 150 years since the theory of evolution was announced, and they had learned nothing. We're talking about the linguists, the, the linguistics who study this. Uh, in that same century and a half, Einstein discovered the speed of light and the relativity of speed, time, and distance. <laughs> Pasteur discovered the microorganisms, DNA, 150 years worth of linguists. Biologists, anthropologists discovered nothing about language, and we still don't know. Darwin had an even bigger problem, a huge gap in evidence when it came to language, which sets human apart from animal ancestors. He couldn't find one shred of solid evidence that human speech had evolved from animals, seemed to have just popped up into the mouths of human beings from out of nowhere. Steven Pinker, somebody who I greatly admire, says, the origin of language is the hardest problem in science. So it's really, really interesting. I'm not trying to suggest that you, know, you all become creationists because of this. Um, you can still believe in evolution, but here's a gaping hole to be figured out. <laughs> Here's a, a massive anomaly to be figured out. And with all the time that we have, we still haven't figured it out. This book blew my mind. I love this book. This is uh, Ed Catmull. He is one of the founders of Pixar. And first off, it's a pretty cool history of Pixar, although he doesn't spend a lot of time on it. And there are other books out there that give you a deeper look into the, the history of Pixar is fascinating because it started in New York. And then it came out to the West Coast after Lucas bought it. 
And Ed Catmill and John Lasseter are the two guys that, that, that really ran Pixar. And all these two guys wanted to do, you know, we talked about making a difference and doing great things today. And Kirk, you talked about the, uh, what is it, zone of, of um, genius. That, that's these guys. That's all they wanted to do. And everybody who bought this company and ran this company wanted them to make computers or wanted, you know, Lucas bought them because he wanted special effects for his Star Wars franchise. These guys weren't interested in any of that crap. So yeah, they'd take the money, but then they'd go off and do whatever they wanted anyway uh, because they wanted to produce something great. And so just some of the lessons from this book, I encourage you all to read this. He says, what makes Pixar special is that we acknowledge we will always have problems, many of them hidden from our view. He's talking about management's view. We work hard to uncover these problems, even if doing so means making ourselves uncomfortable. My goal is to create a culture at Pixar that will outlast its founding leader, uh, its founding, Steve Jobs, Lasseter, and me. I mean, Steve Jobs bought Pixar from Lucas. He poured a billion dollars into it. <laughs> it lost tons of money. He made a huge bet. And boy, it paid off big because now the Jobs family is the largest shareholder in Disney because Disney ultimately bought Pixar. Um, of course, they produce great movies. He says, we start from the presumption our people are talented and want to contribute. Our company is stifling that talent in myriad unseen ways. <laughs> He's talking about Pixar is stifling this talent. Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, if Pixar thinks they're stifling talent, what does a law firm do? to people, or a CPA firm with, you know, billable hour quotas and timesheets and all this other stuff. And you want to talk about project management, I can't even fathom what it takes to produce one of these movies. He talks in detail about some of the project management challenges, and it's fascinating um, to, 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 to see a company that does actual project management that matters, not just give lip service to it. Um, the other thing he says, when it comes to creative inspiration, job titles and hierarchy are meaningless. You know, good ideas can come from anywhere. And in fact, just on that Q-Force exercise that we did yesterday, that was two lessons that I wanted to make sure you got from that, from that Q-Force exercise. You remember that, that we did yesterday? Here are the two, well, two more lessons from that. Because like Ed said, it's a very difficult exercise to think in questions. But the two, two lessons that I think are really cool we all know when we hear a good question, and you could hear it in this room. When this, when this, when this table stood up, I think it was Greg who stood up and, and read off their questions, I could hear people in the back go, that's a great question. You know, they'd lean over to their neighbor and go, that's a great question. Because we all spot a good question. A good question like inspires us to want and go and try and answer it. You know, go find the answer to it. It, it just inspires thought and more action. The second lesson is, the dumbest kid in the room can ask the greatest question. That's key. The dumbest kid in the room can ask the greatest question. Um, so I thought that was really neat. He also said this, if you give a good idea to a mediocre team, they will screw it up. If you give a mediocre idea to a brilliant team, they will either fix it or throw it away and come up with something better. People are more important than ideas. Because, of course, ideas come from people, right? Uh, but, but that's a really good point. In other words, people trump process. Sometimes I think we get so caught up on what's the process. What's the, if you have bright, talented people like the people sitting in this room, you can have a really screwed up process. Just ask Dan. <laughs> Dan. Dan is not a process guy, okay? But he's one of the most creative and brilliant thinkers 
I've, I've ever been around. But he doesn't follow a process. In fact, by, Dan will say something brilliant, and five minutes later, he'll have completely forgotten about it. It'll probably never be implemented. And, uh, but boy, he, he throws out these great ideas, and he's paid handsomely for it. Chefs have a great saying, too, that I heard, technique trumps ingredients. In other words, a good chef can take a lousy ingredient and still make a, or lousy ingredients and still make a great meal. That's fascinating. That's a great line. So people are the most important things. Process and efficiency are not the goals at Pixar. Making something great is the goal. How many times did we hear that today? Whether it was from Marston or a, a lot of your personal debt talks were about you know, contributing to the world, making it a better place, doing great work, uh, whatever it was. That's exactly what Pixar is trying to do. So great book. And folks, without a doubt, the best book I've read in the last two years, without a doubt, is Shoe Dog. <laughs> Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. This is just a great read. You're not going to, I promise you, you will not be able to put this book down. Not only is it well-written, but it's probably got things about Nike that you, I had no clue. I had no clue. Nothing, I knew nothing about this company, really. And this is everything from, you know, all the way to the founding up to, um, you know, his relationship with Tiger Woods. Uh, it's just, just a fantastic book. So I'm not going to tell you anything about it except go buy it and read it. it you're not going to be able to put it down. It reads like a novel. And it's, it's just absolutely brilliant. So that's all I got. And I just want to say, first off, I want to thank Kirk and Ed for putting this together. This <laughs> I, I had nothing to do with it. You know, people think I'm a micromanager, and I do nothing. I, do, I really I just show up and throw up, and I do nothing. Uh, these guys did it all. They did a great job. And... Of course, I want to thank all of our guests for coming. I mean, you guys are amazing. Uh, I know many of you are repeat. I know many of you traveled a long way. I hope that you found it incredibly valuable. Um, if you have any questions, if you want copies of PowerPoint decks, I'm sure we'll You're somehow we will make all this stuff available to you. Uh, so thank you, really, everybody, for coming. Uh, you've been wonderful. I've learned a ton from you all. And to the fellows in the room, uh, Wow, you, you guys, I, I love each and every one of you. I, I, you've changed my life, and you're just amazing. And Verisage will continue whether or not, uh, whatever happens with me and my fate, uh, I know Verisage will live on because of you guys. And Great Kite, you're still my hero, even though you wound me <laughs> up all day. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, and I'll turn it back to Ed. <laughs>